I'd like for us to make a little tweak to our Sunday morning service. Um, I'm wanting us to add into the service a uh, specific, intentional prayer time. I'm encouraged by our church that we are a praying church. We have lots of opportunities during the week for you to be a praying people. We seek to assist you in how to pray. But inside of our Sunday morning service from 1045 to noon, and yes, we do aim to get out by noon on Sundays, um, I want us to have an intentional prayer time. I would like for our, our pastors, elders, to lead this every Sunday as an opportunity that we are praying for something specific to kind of help you all think through that, but also perhaps for you to learn how to be a praying person, to pray more intentional to things. I don't necessarily think that it will be right before the service, maybe so. I mean, right before the sermon, maybe so. We'll try to find a good time for it. But today, I want to lead us in this prayer time, just a, just a minute or two. I want all of us to bow our heads and be united in this prayer together. And today, I want us to pray for the layman family. You remember just three weeks ago, they were here for their final Sunday, Marcus and Rachel Lehman and their children who are now being sent out from our church as missionaries. And I want us to be praying for them now. All right? So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Marcus and Rachel Lehman. We thank you for their lives. We thank you, God, that you have saved them. And God, we thank you that in so many ways they have made our lives better. They have pushed us closer to Christ. We have been encouraged by them. And Father, we pray now that you would continue to work in them, that your Holy Spirit would be strong, that he would be powerful in their lives, that Marcus would be a good husband and father, that Rachel would be a faithful wife and mother, and that you would bless their family. Father, we pray that you would lead them as they are now in Texas for a few months finalizing preparations, Lord. We pray that you would give them encouragement and strength and help them with their plans so that they could get to their location as Bible translators. Lord, we pray that you would equip them to be able to translate the Bible in the best and most effective way possible. We pray, God, that you would lead them. Father, the laymans have sent us this week some specific prayer requests, and we want to lift those to you. Father, we pray that you would continue to provide funds for them. We see their fundraising increasing. They are wanting to get to 75% completion here soon. Lord, we pray that you would make that happen. We pray that individuals would want to give to them. We pray that churches would want to give to them. Lord, we pray that you would provide funds for them. Secondly, God, we pray for churches that would want to partner with them, like we have and like others have, God. We pray that there would be churches that would want to meet them, get to know them, allow them to come and share. And we pray, Father, that those churches would, would catch the vision, so to speak, of what you are calling them to do. Lord, we pray specifically that you would lead them to new churches and new churches to partner with them. And Father, we pray lastly for their travels as they are traveling a lot over the next few months trying to connect with more churches and more people and more support. We pray, God, that during those travels you would use it for your glory, that they would meet people, meet, uh, make connections to support their work. Father, we love them. They are a part of us even though they have gone out from us. And Father, we pray now that you would bless them. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. So we're going to try to do something like that now each Sunday in the service somewhere, and hopefully you'll find that as a, as a blessing and a, and a help to you. Let's turn in the Bible now to the book of Habakkuk. It's a minor prophet in the Old Testament. We've been there now for two weeks. This is our third Sunday. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's page 863 in your pew Bible there, the black Bible there in the pew. Habakkuk chapter 2, we started this two weeks ago, and we did continue last week, and even though we had snow and ice, there's still a good group of us that gathered here. If you were not here last Sunday, we want you to stay uh, caught up on going through Habakkuk, and so that sermon is available online, and we do uh, make some CDs, so if you don't want to listen online, you'd rather listen to CD in the CD player, perhaps in the car, that is available to you too. And we want you to stay uh, caught up on what we're going through. Today, we're going to finish out chapter 2. Habakkuk is a minor prophet, meaning that he is one who gets a message from God and delivers it from, uh, delivers it from God to the people. That's what prophets do. They deliver God's message, God's word. And Habakkuk is one of those. If you were here two weeks ago, you remember, though, that Habakkuk is an an interesting one because he is complaining. The book of Habakkuk begins with two complaints from Habakkuk to God. The first that I preached two weeks ago is Habakkuk is upset. He's got this good frustration, if you will, a holy uh, anger, if there is such a thing inside a sinful person like you or I or Habakkuk. Habakkuk's bothered because God's people are not living like God. He's bothered by hypocrisy. He's bothered by their rebellion, and he's complaining to God because God seems to be letting it go. God's not doing anything about it. The Bible tells us that God sees and God cares and God judges and God disciplines the Bible says that God will deal with us, and Habakkuk's sitting there thinking, this nation of Israel, this people that are yours, God, they don't live like it. They don't look like you. They're, they're causing the world to doubt you. You remember he used that phrase that your law, God, is paralyzed in chapter 1 because of the way your people represent you. And he's complaining about that. God answers back that, that he knows and he sees and, and he's aware. And then God says to that complaint that he's going to raise up another nation, more powerful, bigger, to come and destroy the nation of Israel, to judge them and punish them. God says he's going to do that through the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. That's his second. So then we have Habakkuk's second complaint, where Habakkuk's, what I preached on last week, Habakkuk's like, wait a second. This is worse than my first complaint. It's one thing to say your people aren't living like you, but it's an entirely different thing, God, for you to say, hey, I see it, so I'm going to get a, a pagan people that don't know me or love me at all, and they're going to come and beat my people up, destroy them. Habakkuk's like, what's going on? I didn't like the way you were at first. I really don't like the way you are now. That's his second complaint. But after his second complaint, Habakkuk, beginning in chapter 2, says, but I, but I trust you, God. I don't understand you, but I do trust you. And so I'm going to go set myself up over here on the post, on the wall, at the watchtower, 
And I'm gonna look and see what you say to this, God. I've brought my complaints. Don't understand the way you do things, God. Don't understand life the way it's going. Seems like your solution to my first problem is worse. But I'm gonna sit over here and see what you're gonna say. And God answers back and says, you better write this down, Habakkuk. Make sure everybody knows. Write this down. I see it. I'm going to deal with it. I've got a solution. And then we get to where we are today. And God now brings five woes. W-O-E. This is a woe passage in the Old Testament, in the prophets. Woe is this grief, this Uh, It's kind of like a funeral term. It's this sad pronouncing of judgment. W-O-E, woe. And God is now about to pronounce five woes on the people that are against him. Now, one would naturally and rightly think that God is referring to the Chaldeans here. The Babylonians that are, they don't know God, they don't believe in God, and they're coming now to destroy God's people. You would think that that's naturally who he's talking to, and and, and for sure I think it is. But remember that Habakkuk's original complaint was that, God, your people don't really seem to be your people. And that brings up the whole idea of a remnant, and who are those that are being saved, and Perhaps in the midst of the nation of Israel, there are real Israel and not real Israel. Perhaps in God's people, there are those that are God's people and aren't God's people. And so, this morning, I don't want us to hear these woes as only toward the Chaldeans, but perhaps potentially and probably also directed at those inside God's people who do not love God, who do not believe God. They are Israelites, but they aren't believing. And salvation, as you know, is only found by faith. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, we have that great statement, the righteous will live by faith. Last week we saw that that passage is quoted three times in the New Testament as a way of demonstrating that the only way anybody lives for God, the only way anybody gets right with God, the only way anybody actually brings glory to God is by faith. God is not honored or worshipped first by our goodness or our good works or by our deeds, for we are unable to do that. But when the soul, the person on the inside trusts God, out of that faith, God then produces good works. But our relationship with him is never established by the good works, never. In other words, you can't say, well, I know I'm right with God and I know he loves me because I do this or because I do that. That thinking, that wording, that terminology, that's inaccurate. It's not biblical. That's not Christian. Well, I know I'm going to heaven because I did this. Or I know I'm a good person and God is pleased with me because I do this. All of that is wrong thinking. That is not Christianity. Instead, what we are to say is, I know that I'm going to heaven because I trust God that he's forgiven me. 
I know I love God because I know how much God loves me first and I trust him. I know that my heart loves him because Jesus died for me and through Christ I have been made new, redeemed, come alive, set free. My sins have been forgiven. And it's because of God's character and our trusting in that that you and I have relationship with God. And when we become believers, then the Bible does teach that God produces good works in us. There is such a thing as fruit hanging off the tree of faith, okay? There is such a thing as, as goodness in the world or, or, or people that live obedient lives in the world, but it is the product of saving faith. It is not the root of saving faith, okay? Faith in Jesus is what gives us a right relationship with God. And so this is what Habakkuk is understanding from God, but Habakkuk seems to think, but God, you act like you're not involved. You act like you're not doing anything, and it's bothering me, both for your people and for the people that aren't your people that you're raising up to come and destroy your people. Habakkuk has all of these complaints. So on the backside of God's answer, when he explains that he sees, write this down, Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith, he comes with these woes, five woes. And I hope you've lived long enough that you know that there is a right place for there to be a rebuke, right? There's a right time and place for somebody to tell somebody, hey, you're wrong there and you need to stop. I hope you know that. If you have little children, I know you know it, but if you've not had little children in a while, perhaps you've forgotten. There's a right place for that. You know, one of the biggest rules that come out during the summertime if you have little kids is no running around the pool, right? And kids take off running around the pool, and you say, stop running, stop running, stop running, and they think you're being rude, they think you're being mean, they think that's a silly rule. It's fun to run around the pool, but if you've ever seen somebody running fast and slip beside the pool and fall on that concrete, you realize, hey, that's a good rule, isn't it? That is a good rule. When you wipe out on the, beside a pool and fall on the concrete, you are totally aware that there was a good reason that my dad just yelled at me to not run around the pool, right? So that woe announcement or that judgment or that rebuke, which seemed harsh at the time, was totally a good thing. And so it is, guys, in life. If we are living like God doesn't matter, if we are living in a way that does not worship God, trust God, believe God, look to God, we need to hear a woe. Now, before you all think that we ought to be running around with our fingers pointed at everybody, which surely you know better than that, the Bible also gives us tons of teaching and instruction on how we're to do that in love, judging ourselves first before anybody else. And in this passage here today, it's not even Habakkuk or anybody else doing the judging. It's God's perspective. And so over and above all of us trying to encourage and bless and help each other, I want you all to hear today, God has an opinion about who you are and how you're living. You may not even think about that. God has an opinion about who you are and how you are living. And he wants you to see 
that he does not like it. He is not pleased. He is angered when you are not loving him. But being the good, loving God he is, through his son Christ, he is now inviting you back to trust him, to be forgiven, to be restored. So read with me, if you will, at Habakkuk chapter 2, and I want us to begin at verse 5, right after the statement, the righteous shall live by faith, God says, moreover, Wine is a traitor. Y'all have heard me speak many times to alcohol and the dangers of it, how you need to be careful with it. The Bible does not say alcohol in and of itself is a sin. The Bible warns you to be careful with it. That drunkenness is and always is a sin. There ought to be much wisdom and much caution from anybody who wants to live for God with alcohol. Yet here's another place. Wine is a traitor. It will trick you. It will deceive you. You'll think it's not that big of a deal. Next thing you know, it is. An arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death. He has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is the end of God speaking about, yes, I do see what people are like in the world. Remember Habakkuk's complaint was that God, it's like you don't even see, you don't know, you don't care. And God says, oh, I see. Oh, you better believe I see, Habakkuk. Habakkuk was taken back that his timing was not the way he wanted it to be. He thought his judgment was better than God's judgment or his resolve or, or, or response was better than God's response. And that's not the case. God sees. And so here, beginning in verse 6, we have the woes from God. Five of them. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. Now, I don't intend here to spend a lot of time on all five. I just want you to see what's happening here. So here's how it goes. There are five woes. Each woe gets three verses, all right? So the first woe is 9 through 11. The second woe is 12 through 14. I mean, sorry, the first woe is 6 through 8. The second woe is 9 through 11. The third woe is 12 through 14. The fourth woe is 15 through 17. And the final fifth woe Uh, covers verses 18 through 20. And each time, God is kind of pointing out something else. Here, as you can see, there is this arrogant, taking advantage of people to so further build up yourself. Extortion, if you will. It says the plunder of people and of nations and heaping up what is not his own, loading himself up with other people's things. We could go on and on with how people do this and what this exactly looks like, taking advantage of those that should not be taken advantage of, this type of a thing. God sees that. 
It even says there with the wording that the plunder uh, will be the plunderer will be plundered. It comes back there. It says verse eight because you've plundered many nations. Then it says all the remnants of the people shall plunder you. In other words, however these godless people are living and trying to accumulate for themselves more and more wealth at the expense of other people in a bad way, God sees that. So my first point for you today is that God sees what we do specifically externally. God sees what we do. I have no idea what you did before church this morning, but God knows. I like how kind you are often when you speak to me, and I don't know how you speak to your family members at home, but God knows. And God sees it completely hypocritical if you are kinder to those outside your home than you are to those inside your home. God sees what we do externally. These people were living their lives and they were just thinking, let the rich get rich, let me get more and more and more. And they did it in a bad way, evil way, wrong way. They took advantage of people, they plundered them, they overtook peoples and communities and nations and all of that. And they heaped up for themselves things that were not their own. There was theft there and all of this. And they thought, hey, we're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And God says, I see that and it's coming back on you. He says, woe to that. Verse 9, you see the second woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high and to be safe from the reach of harm. This second woe is like a false security going to whatever extent to get stuff, to get money, to get comfort, a security that you're going about the wrong way. It's like saying I need money, so I'll go to any extent to get money, even if it's lying or cheating. It's like saying I need stuff, so I'll go to any extent to get stuff, whether it's lying or cheating or stealing. And whatever it is or taking advantage of people, God sees that. Verse 10 says, you've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork Respond. God gives a little personification here, a little uh, metaphor saying that even as you're in this big, nice, fancy house, the way you got that was crooked. And so the walls and the beams will witness to you and testify to you that you didn't gain this honestly. And while you may sit back in your chair thinking, look how well we've done God knows that it was not from a heart that went about it faithfully. Woe to that person. False security. Evil gain for safety. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 5 where you have another woe. And God says this, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We may be very much so out of line if we don't know what God says is good. We may be very much so out of line if we don't know what truth is or what wrong is or what right is. If we don't know the heart of God, then perhaps we're off on that and we celebrate and recognize things that ought not to be celebrated and ought not to be recognized. Woe to that person 
who in evil, sinful, destructive ways seeks to gain safety, security. Verse 12, the third woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. This third woe is about violence. It's about uh, aggressiveness in ways that should not be happening, which is very common in the world. If we have to go to violence, we often go to violence. And God says, woe to those who take advantage of peoples and overtake towns and cities and places and peoples with violence. It's not right that way. Doing something by force is so often not the way it needs to be done. This is not the way uh, God would have it to be done. And so God is rebuking these people now with a woe that it should not be that way. If you have to force yourself upon someone for you to gain recognition, then you are missing the point. In contrast to that, look at verse 14, one of the best verses in all of Habakkuk. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God, it's a reminder here that while his people are not living like God and while there is another nation, the Chaldeans, that God is raising up to bring and to plunder his people, God reminds everybody here that one day everybody will recognize that God is the great one. And while we live in a world where nation after nation continue to try to brag and boast and stick their chest out, we hear phrases like the greatest nation ever and that nobody can stop us and we hear people talk like that in all different parts of the world and God says whoa wait a second there's coming a day where the glory of the Lord will cover the entire earth there's coming a day where nobody ever will beat their chest saying look at me or look at us for the message of life is look at God when people start to get boastful because nobody can stop them, the Chaldeans can take over any nation they want. But Habakkuk lets us know that their power is only able to be powerful in the hand of God. God can stop his people like he's going to by the Chaldeans. And he says, here, I'll stop the Chaldeans when it's time to stop the Chaldeans. And any hint of arrogance coming from anybody anywhere is misplaced. Life is about God. Woe to those who are arrogant and woe to those who are violent. God sees what we do. The fourth woe begins in verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. This one, and I mentioned the alcohol at the beginning in verse 5, that wine is a traitor. This one here specifically is to the drunken way of life. Debauchery, if you will. The Bible gives a woe to that. Sober-minded speaks to the mindset that says, I'm sober, I'm thinking clearly, I got a good head on my shoulders, I'm thinking rightly about this. 
The opposite of sober-minded would be drunkenness, that uh, my thinking is distorted. I don't have a, a, a good head on my shoulders. I'm not thinking rightly about this. And the Bible warns that nobody ought to be living that way. You must be very careful to never, I mean never, allow yourself to get out of the mindset or the frame of mind that says, Christ is king, I live for his glory, God is what my life is to be about. And the Bible warns here of not only peoples, individuals, but nations that know if we can get people thinking wrongly, then we can take advantage of them and we can overtake them. He says, woe to this. We're all familiar with how often Fights break out when alcohol is involved, how much uh, sexual advances take place when alcohol is involved, how, much, how many families are suffering right now because somebody in the household struggles with alcohol. We ought to hear here, while this is not so much a woe to individuals, it is a woe to an entire nation that knows how to use alcohol and drunkenness and debauchery and getting yourself out of the, frame, the, the, the framework, the, the, the frame of mind that life is about God. What does God say? What does God think? How ought I to be? And he says, woe here. And he even comes back with strong language in verse 16. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. The Bible often speaks of God having a cup of wine that he will pour out, which refers to his wrath, his judgment, his anger, his punishment. We ought to be very careful when we get into drinking or we're using alcohol or we're taking part in it. We must be very careful. Here the Bible says it warns against alcohol and it speaks to God's wrathful anger and judgment coming against those who, because of alcohol, lose their focus. That's why we want to say very carefully, if there's ever a time in your life where you lose your focus, work on correcting that. And if you know that alcohol causes you to lose focus, get away from it. How foolish is the person that wants to say, well, the Bible doesn't say drinking is a sin, but as soon as they start drinking, they sin in other ways. Stop that. That's foolish. The fourth woe here seems to speak toward drunkenness and debauchery. And then you get to verse 18, and it's the most intense. It's the final woe. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. God says, woe to you who worship things other than God. It's idolatry. And he says it with some pretty beautiful language. He's mocking or taunting, if you will, just how silly it is for you to worship something that's not real, that's not alive. You're worshiping a block or worshiping wood or worshiping something that you made. How foolish is that? It breaks up the, it brings to mind the imagery of the, prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal when he challenged them. And they wanted the challenge and he says, okay, let's see which God is more powerful, your God or my God. And they said, all right, let's do that. 
And he says, okay, y'all build an altar right there with all those stones and put your, uh, put your sacrifice on it. And y'all pray to your God and see if he'll burn it up. And they said, okay, we'll do that. And they built an altar and put their sacrifice on it. And a bunch of them started praying to their false gods that they worship, come burn up this sacrifice. And nothing happened. And Elijah standing over there just kind of starts chuckling like, I can't believe they didn't even realize that they're praying to a fake God. Elijah's kind of like, well, maybe he's in the bathroom. The Bible says that. Elijah says, well, maybe the reason why your God's not answering you is he's in the bathroom. He just didn't hear you right now. Y'all, it's a joke that people would worship something other than God. It's wrong. And yes, in America, we don't really worship idols in the sense of like a little statue in your home, or at least I'm not very familiar with many of you all that do that. But we do have idols, don't we? Work is an idol. Money is an idol. Self-esteem is an idol. Me-centeredness is an idol. Self-centeredness is an idol. Family is often an idol. And the Bible here warns with a woe towards idolatry. All five of these woes are showing us God sees what we do. The reason why I say that is because, remember, Habakkuk's complaint was that, God, you don't see. You're not doing anything. You're not even aware. And so God comes back with all of this evidence of what he's seen. All the rest of chapter 2, all five of these woes are God saying, Habakkuk, you don't think I see? Come on. I'm from everlasting to everlasting. I see everything. The Bible tells us God has written in his books everything you've ever done. Every word you've ever said, every deed you've ever done, every thought you've ever thought, the Bible says God has all of that written down. And since we're going to be with him forever in eternity, he will spend his time dealing with us on it. Habakkuk's complaint that God doesn't see what we're doing is so out of line. Habakkuk is thinking like he's God. That's idolatry. God is bigger than Habakkuk. He's bigger than you too. God sees everything that you're doing. And if you're not a believer here today, then you're right now wrestling with that. Well, I'm not sure that he does, or I'm not sure that it matters, or or maybe he doesn't care. I'm not sure if he sees me. Listen, he does. And if you are a believer here today, may may that come to you as both good and bad, heavy and, and, and light and comfortable and uncomfortable in the sense that you don't want to sin against him. You want to live in a way that pleases your Father in heaven. You want to bow yourself before him and say, God, despite all that I am, I know you love me. I know that Jesus' death on the cross was for me. God sees everything. He sees what we do externally. But secondly, God God not only sees what we do, but God sees why we do it. In other words, he sees internally. God sees the motive. God cannot be deceived. You can't trick him. In Matthew chapter 23, and I would like for you to turn there. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. We see another list of woes. If you don't know this passage, you need to. This is a list of woes here from Jesus himself. Seven of them. And while Habakkuk's five woes are from God toward uh, a pagan nation that clearly doesn't know God, 
Jesus' seven woes in Matthew 23 are directed straight at the people who say they are living for God. The Pharisees, the Jews. This passage is scary. If you don't know Matthew 23, you ought to. My first point, God sees what we do externally. My second point, God sees why we do it. God sees internally. This passage in Matthew 23, again, is seven woes. Let me show you a few. Look at 23.13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Look at this. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You mean, you mean there are religious people who are trying to tell other people that the kingdom's not for them? Doesn't that sound awful? Yet I've heard in our day this notion that People shouldn't go to church acting that way or shouldn't go to church dressed that way or, or this and that. This, this is ridiculous. Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees for thinking that you have the control on who and who not is in the kingdom. Look at verse 16. Woe to you blind guides, he calls them. Blind guide is a simple phrase that says so much. You think you're leading people in religion, but you're blind. You're leading them nowhere. Look at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Oh, what an indictment on so many religious people. They think that because they attend something and give money to something, that that makes them the people of God. But love and mercy and justice and faithfulness, they have no regard for. They are awful. Folks, before your commitment to church and before your commitment to giving money, which both should be a huge commitment in your life because God says that, understand that God sees your heart and you must love what God loves. Be merciful because God's been merciful to you. Desire to be faithful because God's been faithful to you. God sees not only the outside, but God sees the inside too. Verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Listen to this. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Move on to verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. Listen to this. Which outwardly appear beautiful. But within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others. But within you, inside of you, he says, are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. God just told the religious people that you look like a casket. And outside of caskets look so good. Every funeral I go to, I hear somebody say, man, that's a good looking casket. And they cost $10,000, so they ought to look good. But on the inside of the casket, after just a few days, the body is rotting and decaying. And I know that's graphic, and y'all don't like to think about it, but Jesus just told that to the churchgoers, to the religious people. That looks like you. Because we can walk it or talk it, but we often are not concerned about the inside which God alone sees. How many times does Jesus say, your father who sees in secret? 
Folks, if you want to be a lover of God, if you want to be one who truly worships him, you are aware that he sees what you do externally, but you're also so aware, even gripped, even controlled, that God in heaven sees what you do on the inside or why you do it. That separates the true from the fake. And in a world where everybody's got their opinion, there is such a need for authenticity. There is such a need for people to be the same in front of your face and behind your back, is there not? There is such a need for the people of God and for the church-going people to talk one way here and talk one way there, to treat their church family one way and to treat their, treat their home family one way at home, to be honest with their finances in this direction and honest with their finances in that direction, to, teach, to, to, to have their sexual lives going this way and have their sexual lives going that way, for our lives to look like, you know, over and above what any of you all see or think in me or from me is that there is something bigger going on. God sees the why we do it. He sees what we do and he sees why we do it. If you go on just a few verses later to verse 33, look here, 33. You serpents, he says. You brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Does everybody see that? That is the words of Jesus to his religious people, to the people who are the people of God. A brood of vipers is like a snake home. It's where all the little baby snakes are at getting ready to go out. He says that to the religious people. If your household, listen to me, is still one of those that has conversations like this, man, all of those people are messed up, and those people on that side of town, and those people in that country, and those people over there, and those people on this side or that side or that political party. If y'all are still the type of people that badmouth everybody else and never actually speak to your own issues, you sound like this. Woe to us for being that way. Woe to us. If there are people in South Louisville or in Louisville or in Fairdale or in this area who think about us that we think we're better than them, woe to us. If there are people in, in your lives that you're trying to impress how you live and you've not been thinking about what God thinks of you, woe to you. God sees what you do and God sees why you do it. You have the woes in Habakkuk, and you have the woes here in Matthew. And now turn back to Habakkuk for the final point. Verse 20. If God sees what we do externally, and God sees why we do it internally, then finally, God is the answer to that problem that we have. Look at the end of God's message in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Have you come to God silently? Have you bowed yourself down? You ever been caught 
exposed. The other day, Carolina was talking about some videos she had seen. It wasn't bad at all. She was telling me about some girl that had a couch in her bedroom. And I'd never heard of a couch in a bedroom. I said, why would she have a couch in her bedroom? She said, you know, just so you can chill on it or something. Carolina's five. I said, so you can do what? And she froze. She didn't say anything else. Because she knew that I knew, what in the world are you talking about? I had never heard her use the word chill before. And that's true. That's what a couch is for, right? Just chill out on it. But I'd never heard her say that. So I said, so she can do what? And she wouldn't speak. She was embarrassed, and she knew that I was taken back by it. And so she stood there kind of silent. You ever get like that before God? Like, he knows me. He knows my insides. He knows my heart. He knows why I'm sad. He knows why I'm angry. He knows why I'm frustrated. He knows why I'm running. He knows why I hurt. He knows why I hurt others. He knows why I fight back. He knows why I stress out. He knows why I run to this solution or that solution. He knows everything. And have you bowed yourself before him to say, God, I know why you sent Jesus. Because I need you. I know why Jesus died. Because I need you. And I want you to hear today that it is at that place, with that posture, where you can be honest that God does see all that you do, the good and the bad. And that God does see why you do it all. God knows. And instead of lying about it, making excuses, or trying to talk yourself out of it, you can simply say, God, forgive me. I'm tired of playing the game. I'm tired of trying to make everybody else think that I'm something that I'm not. God, forgive me and give me life from you. And he does. After all of this complaining from Habakkuk, God answers back with the woes. And he ends it with, God is where God's supposed to be. God is doing what God is supposed to be doing. Let everybody be silent before him. And then next week, chapter 3, Habakkuk starts praying to God this beautiful prayer of trust and faith. May God lead you there today. Don't wait for next Sunday to see if you want to trust too. Turn to God now. Trust in Jesus. Father in heaven, thank you for the book of Habakkuk and for the honest assessment that you see us through and through. Father, lead us now to come before you honestly, seeking forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.